to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is December 18th, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, I can't wait for an inpatient bed. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Carpenter. He is the Vice Chair of Emergency Medicine at Mayo Clinic. Also, the smartest guy in the room if you're in a room with him. And on top of that, he's also my BFF. Welcome back to the SGM, Chris. Ken, it's been a while. It's great to be back. Yeah, we had to bump this recording because of your busy social life. You had to get out and go to a monster movie yesterday. Tell me more. Yeah, my son is home for, for Christmas and he's a cinematography student and we had to go see this Godzilla movie. It was it was good. I didn't know there was a new Godzilla movie out. What's the premise? Yeah, it's Godzilla minus one. It's a prequel. So it shows you how the creature came to be in the days after World War II and the drop of the nuclear bomb. Oh, so it was exposed to radiation. Yeah, I know the backstory, right? Exposed to radiation and then created this monstrous creature and stuff like that. So that's the twist is that they're doing an origin story like all the Marvel movies. Yeah, yeah. And and there's a humanism element too, because you get to see the impact of that nuclear bomb drop on the Japanese citizens. So um, next year, instead of having my Mission Impossible Part Deux party, should I have a Godzilla party? Was it that good of a movie? I think they're planning a sequel to this prequel. So yeah, I think we could do that. So it'll be Godzilla plus one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like fun. All right. Well, <clears throat> we're not here to talk about, you know, monster movies. We're here to talk about some medicine and create some amazing FOMED. So give us a case. Well, Ken, you got an 85-year-old patient. We'll call her Mrs. McGee. She presents to your ED after being found by family on the ground at her independent living facility. Her family's concerned because she has had multiple recent falls and she wasn't answering the telephone that morning. They found her in a pool of blood with a scalp laceration and complaining of left hip pain, saying she couldn't get up. Although she had exhibited occasional disorientation and gradually diminished physical activity over the last five years, she was still functionally independent, hence living in an independent living facility. Your ED evaluation, including a CT of her spine and head, demonstrates no traumatic injury, and the x-ray of her pelvis and hip shows no fracture or dislocation. Still, she's not able to bear weight due to her hip pain, so you order a CT scan to further evaluate for a cult fracture, but that's not going to be available till morning by the time that test was ordered. So you suspect an occult fracture, at least you need to rule it out because she won't bear weight. You consult ortho for admission, but they want to await the CT, which is going to be the next day. Then you consult internal medicine hospitalists who also want to await the CT imaging in case this admission was more appropriate for orthopedic surgery. After all these consult calls, it's now after midnight, and you're concerned that the patient would be in your ED all night and what the consequences of a preventable episode of overnight ED boarding might be on this patient and the rest of the department since the waiting room still has 20 patients waiting to be seen. Wow, what a great case. There's so many things to unpack in that case. It makes me think of that time where you... As the, as the emergency physician holding up the two phones together and letting the two <laughs> consulting services talk, to, do I have to be in the middle of this conversation and going back and forth and back and forth? No, you guys talk to each other and get back to me in 15 minutes. But the mm -hmm. answer is not going to be the patient stays here. The other thing that I picked up about that is, you know, I've fallen and can't get up. And the reason there was some commercial about that, you know, oh, I've fallen and can't get up is this because it is such a common cause of injury. In fact, falling and ground level falls is the most common cause of traumatic injury resulting in older adults presenting to the emergency department. 
and one in five of those falls result in some form of injury and falls. And this is the scary statistic, Chris. And I remember you giving this to me. Falls are the leading cause of traumatic mortality. That's right. Death in this age group, ground level falls. Very serious. Yeah, serious and scary. My own parents are aging. My mom is having issues with these falls now. And older adults who are admitted to the hospital after a fall will be readmitted to the hospital within one year in 44% of cases. One third will die within one year. Because it's such a serious topic, Ken, we've covered this topic several times on SGEM and other podcasts. Yeah, and we'll put a list in the show notes about the various SGEM podcasts, but there's also the GEMcast podcast and also a Geriatric ED Collaborative Falls resource that we'll make available. Because I really think, you know, it's important to hear those numbers. Almost half of patients who are older and have fallen will be readmitted within a year, and a third of them will be dead. Like, that, that's a scary statistic. And now that emergency departments are becoming more and more crowded, the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, CAPE, flagged this issue 10 years ago. They published a position statement with several suggested solutions. Unfortunately, things have only gotten worse, and it doesn't seem to be an isolated problem in Canada. No, it's not isolated to Canada. The American College of Emergency Physicians, ASAP, held a summit of stakeholders across healthcare in September of 2023. They got together a wide range of leaders and various organizations to discuss potential solutions to what is called boarding of patients. Yeah, boarding of patients, yeah. Perhaps we should define the term boarding as we're going to be using it in the context of emergency medicine for this show. Um, it's when a patient has been assessed and deemed to need admission to hospital. However, there are no beds available in the hospital and the patient remains in the emergency department. And they can end up waiting hours, days, or even have their entire inpatient hospital stay and care delivered in the ED. Wow, that's amazing. That's a 20, 21st century phenomenon. The, the Joint Commission is an organization in the U.S. that sets standards to improve safety in healthcare. They've identified the boarding of patients in the ED as a significant safety risk. In 2012, they said patients should not remain in the ED after the decision to admit to hospital of more than four hours. It's been reported that waiting longer than four hours can result in downstream harms, preventable harms, which include but are likely not limited to increased medical errors, compromises to patient privacy, and increased mortality. Gabe Kellen at, at Hopkins said boarding like a, is like a canary in a coal mine for the healthcare system and is more likely to happen when hospital occupancy rates exceed 85 to 90%. Well, that comment about a canary in a coal mine reminds me of a tweet by one of my mentors, Dr. Alan Drummond. He's a rural physician, and I followed his career with great interest and great respect. He's been warning about this problem of overcrowding probably for decades now and emphasizes that it's a system problem, not just a problem in the emergency department. And Al posted a tweet. Uh, it's a little spicy. Uh, he posted a tweet with some sad news uh, on the site formerly known as Twitter saying the effing canary was dead. <laughs> so, I mean, fairly blunt. And he has a picture of a dead canary, you know, belly up and stuff like that. But boy, does it get the message across. And, you know, listening to you talk about, oh, well, you know, once we've made the decision that the patient needs to be admitted, they should only be there for four hours. 
Within the last month, our tertiary care center was posting wait times. So that's not wait times to be admitted. That's not length of stay in the department. This is wait times for first physician contact. And they post these publicly on a website. Mm -hmm. And the wait time at certain points, the wait time was over 19 hours just to be seen. So you can imagine how this domino effect, you know, you've got all these boarded patients in the emergency department, they can't get admitted to the inpatient unit, it'll have a direct effect on how many new patients because the front door doesn't close. And you're Mm -hmm. going to have all these other patients and now they're waiting close to 20 hours just for physician contact. Like that's not their length of stay. That's to, hi, I'm, I'm Ken Milne. I'm the uh, emergency physician. I'm going to be caring for you today. You know, that that first contact, uh, that means those ambulances, those paramedics are ending up ramped. Ramped is the term, you know, they're, they're stuck on the ramp for hours, for hours, instead of unloading their patients and getting back and caring out for new patients and being available for other emergencies. So it, it has this whole domino effect across the emergency, uh, across the healthcare system. And the problem isn't in the emergency department, but as Dr. Drummond, so, you know, close your eyes and make that visual. There's the dead canary. Yep, it's dead. That's the coal mine. It's truly terrifying as a, as a physician. But what about as a patient and a citizen of a, a nation where the vision of emergency medicine was anyone, anytime, any place? You can't wait 19 hours in some scenarios to get that first evaluation. That's That's scary. It really is scary. I went on this morning before we uh, started recording just to see how it was on a Monday morning. And uh, both of our tertiary care sites, the two two hospitals, were both uh, nine plus hours. So what a way to start Monday morning uh, with a nine plus hour wait. Well, there's a study published in the EMJ last year talking about increased mortality associated with longer wait times in the National Health Service of the UK. They observed an increase in all-cause mortality in the next month for patients who waited more than five hours to be admitted. This isn't a unique observation. Other researchers have published similar findings, including our friends, Jesse Pines and Peter Vicellio. Yeah, and I want to make sure that uh, listeners realize that I'm not criticizing the emergency department for, for these long wait times and time to be seen by a physician and length of stay and all that stuff. Again, it's a system problem. These people are working in very, very difficult situations with a lack of resources, lack of staff, lack of um, beds within the department, all sorts of things causing this to end up with these really, really long wait times. And I think the solutions have to be found at a system level rather than saying, hey, uh, the emergency department needs to do something differently. They are doing an incredible job in extremely difficult situations. So again, I don't want this to come across as a criticism of my colleagues working at the tertiary care centers. No, I would add that this is a system level requiring a solution urgently because we've got a big problem with burnout of nursing and of physicians in emergency medicine. And the longer that this situation perpetuates, the the more catalyzed that burnout situation becomes and accelerates. Yeah. And we get it at both ends, right? The burnout. So you, so the burnout or the moral injury, right? You have these veteran nurses that have been there for 30 years that have such institutional knowledge going, you know what? I'm tapping out. I'm done. And that institutional knowledge walks out the door. 30 years walks out the door. 
And then yeah, at the other end of the spectrum, you have all these young new nurses coming in and they have just been trained. They've got all this enthusiasm and energy and new ideas and stuff that can add to the department that are so valuable. And in a very short period of time, they're disillusioned, burnt out, moral injury, and they leave as well. Mm -hmm. And and it leaves us with a a very, very small cohort of um, people that all of this rests on their shoulders, unfortunately. Wow, this is turning into a real downer. Come on, Chris, let's uh, turn this around. Give me a clinical question. Well, the clinical question in the paper we're talking about today is what is the association between older adults who are boarded in the ED overnight and in-hospital mortality? And the reference for that question? Uh, Roussel, Overnight Stay in the ED and Mortality in Older Patients from JAMA Internal Medicine, 2023. Okay, let's run through the PCOT. What was the population? The population in this study was patients 75 or older from 97 EDs across France who are admitted to the hospital after the emergency medicine evaluation. And then they had a number of exclusions, including patients discharged home from the emergency department, admitted to the ICU. So we're not talking about ICU patients. We're just talking about patients that need to come into hospital but not get intensive care or admitted to a ward between midnight and 8 a.m. What was the intervention? The ED group who spent the night in the ED on a trolley awaiting a ward bed between midnight and 8 a.m. So do you call them trolleys where you work in uh, in the U.S.? Are they called trolleys? No, we call them gurneys or, or beds if we're able to get a hospital bed down there. Okay, yeah, we call them beds or stretchers. You know, somebody's on a stretcher or in a bed. But uh, I think trolley is, seems like a British term to me. Would you Would you agree with that? A trolley? Yeah, maybe a European term from these European. French authors. Oh, yeah, it's French, yep. All right, um, and what did they compare it to? The comparison was a ward group admitted to an inpatient ward before midnight. All right, let's go through the outcomes. What was the primary outcome? In-hospital mortality, truncated at 30 days. And their secondary outcomes? They had several. In-hospital length of stay and inpatient adverse events, including falls, nosocomial infections, bleeding, MI, stroke, venous thromboembolism, pressure ulcers, or sodium disorders. And then the final uh, letter is T of that PCOT. What type of study was this? This is a retrospective cohort, which happened to adhere to the strobe standards of the Equator Network for observational studies. So the authors concluded, quote, for older patients waiting overnight in the emergency department for admission to a ward was associated with an increase in in-hospital mortality and morbidity, particularly in patients with limited autonomy. Older adults should be prioritized for admission to a ward, end of quote. All right, so we've got a checklist for observational studies. Let's run through that quickly and then jump into the results. Did the study address a clearly focused issue? Yes, I believe it did. And how about the methods? Do you think they were appropriate to answer the question they were concerned about? Yes, since I think the authors were trying to determine associations, I think the methods were appropriate. The authors reviewed electronic health records for routinely collected data from patients who were prospectively identified. The issue of overnight ED delays is unlikely one that any IRB would ever permit us to do a randomized study. And do you think the cohort was recruited in an acceptable way? Yes, a a local investigator screened consecutive eligible patients in the ED over a two-day period. And do you think the exposure was accurately measured to minimize bias? 
yeah, we presume the electronic health records and enrolling local investigator were able to accurately determine which patients were discharged home and which ones spent the night in the emergency department and which ones went right up to the ward after admission. And how about the outcome? Was it accurately measured to minimize bias? I'm unsure here. We presume using the electronic health record reflects when patients died during the index hospitalization, and we can be confident in the primary outcome. However, abstractors were unblinded to the study objectives, and no inter-rater reliability assessment was performed or reported, so determination of subjective inpatient adverse events like fall, nosocomial infection, bleeding, MI, stroke, or pressure ulcer might have been biased. So it sounds like it's a yes for the objective primary outcome of mortality, but the morbidity or the adverse events is unsure. Correct. Those, Yeah, for the secondary outcomes. All right. Have the authors identified all important confounding factors? No. The authors adjusted for age, sex, high level of comorbidity defined by Charleston comorbidity index greater than six, high level of dependency, blood pressure, oxygenation, and trauma-related ED visit. Other factors that could possibly be associated with increased inpatient mortality could be related to patient level or hospital level issues. Patient level factors could include frailty, cognitive dysfunction, and end-of-life scenarios, including what matters most to the patient. Hospital level issues could include individual unit crowding, delayed access to time-dependent interventions like endoscopy, operating room, or cath lab. And do you think the follow-up of subjects was complete enough? Yeah, unless patients were transferred to another hospital during the index admission and the outcomes of the outside hospital course of care were not reviewed. And how precise did you find the results? I think they're precise enough for my purposes. The median ED length of stay was 23 hours with an interquartile range of 18 to 28 because they're reporting medians in the ED group and seven hours, 35 minutes or one third the time in the ward group with an interquartile range of 5.5 to 10 hours. A substantial number, 11%, Stayed in the ED for two nights, not just one, but two nights. Whoa, two nights in the ED? Wow. One, one in 10. And in hospital mortality was higher in the ED group than the ward group, 15.7% versus 11.1% with an adjusted uh, relative risk of 1.39 and a 95% confidence interval 1.07 to 1.81. The risk of adverse events was also higher in the ED group, 15.8% versus 10.8% with an adjusted relative risk of 1.24, 95% confidence interval, 1.04 to 1.49. So pretty tight precision. And it was particularly uh, notable nosocomial infections and falls. The median hospital length of stay was nine days in the ED group and eight days in the ward group. Wow, you got a whole bunch of results in that question of just how precise are the results. We'll have some spaced repetition in the results section then. Um, Do you believe the results? Yeah, I think these findings have face validity since ED staff are neither trained nor equipped to provide inpatient care anywhere, and and most deliver that care with congested waiting rooms, nursing shortages, and considerable interruptions while patients continue to arrive to the ED 24-7. And you mentioned that this was a study done in France. Do you think the results can be applied to your local population? I, I believe that if these outcomes were assessed at any hospital worldwide, the results would be replicated. Yes, I do. And do you think the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yeah, we've already had mentioned that ED crowding has been associated with mortality in other studies. And how about the funding of the study? Where did the money come from? I'm not sure. There's no direct funding to this research reported. The Paris Public Hospital Association sponsored the work, but did not fund it. Two authors report work with multiple biomedical device and pharmaceutical companies, but the personal fees associated with that corporate work were, quote, outside the submitted work, end quote. 
Okay, so we're going to get into those results. The cohort consisted of almost 1,600 patients with a median interquartile range of 86 that went from 80 to 90 years. Female patients comprised 55% of the total sample size. The top five reasons for ED visits were for respiratory problems, anesthesia, infection, falls, and cardiovascular issues. Chris, what was the key result? Among admitted adults older than 75, overnight stays in the ED are associated with significantly increased in-hospital mortality and adverse events over the subsequent 30 days. All right, let's focus in on that primary outcome about mortality. Give us some numbers. The primary outcome, patients who spent the night in the ED had a higher in-hospital mortality rate of 15.7% versus 11.1% in those who didn't spend the night in the ED. And like we just mentioned, the adjusted risk ratio does not cross one. And let's go through the secondary outcomes. Older patients who spent the night also had several worse secondary outcomes. Those included the risk of adverse events in the ED group, like nosocomial infections and falls, with incidence rates of adverse events 15.8% in those who spent the night in the ED versus 10.8% in those who went right to the ward. And the median ED length of stay was 23 hours. Yes, you're hearing that correctly. Almost a whole day. And I don't mean day as in like daytime. I mean almost a whole 24-hour day with a median length of stay of 23 hours in the ED group and seven hours and 35 minutes in the ward group. Yeah, not surprising with those numbers because a substantial number, like we said, 11% stayed in the ED for two nights, not one, two nights. That's incredible. And then uh, increased median hospital length of stay, not a huge difference, nine days versus eight days. All right, let's talk nerdy, my favorite section. We're going to go through five things and you get to go with the first thing. The first thing that, that popped out to me was race and ethnicity. This data was collected in accordance with French law uh, and French law doesn't allow them to collect a lot of this race, race and ethnicity data. Substantial health inequities associated with race, religious affiliation, or socioeconomic status may be linked with in-hospital mortality or ED boarding delays, but unable to assess that because French law doesn't allow them to collect that data. And then the second nerdy point was about confounders, unmeasured patient level and hospital level confounders, which you talked about earlier, like frailty, cognitive dysfunction, palliative care, aligned with patient goals of care may have been associated with the primary outcome. And then the third point is the level of geriatrization of the ED, that the extent to which these 97 French EDs had had become geriatric friendly. Um, measures of geriatric appropriateness exist, along with clinical practice guidelines, accreditation processes through ASAP, implementation strategies, and learning collaboratives like the Geriatric ED Collaborative. But the authors don't really report if any of their EDs had undergone any of that geriatrization. I'm glad you got to say geriatrization because you know that I would mispronounce it horribly. Geriatric friendly, I'm okay with, but the geriatricized, yes. Okay, point number four, strobe. Yeah, see, that was easy for me. Strobe. We mentioned that they followed the strobe standards, and strobe stands for strengthening the reporting of observational studies in epidemiology. Um, so they did the strobe standard of the equator network. However, the limitations of applying strobe to a geriatric observational study um, is not contemplated. And we'll put a link in there around that. 
yeah, the Journal of the American Geographic Society has a new series called Around the Equator. Thus far, we've looked at the STAR reporting guidelines for implementation science and the tripod reporting standards for prognostic modeling. But the difficulty of applying these reporting standards when the population is an aging population, older adults, really requires a, a, a close look to see what the problems and barriers might be to applying them. And Strobe, we've not yet tackled at that JAG series. The fifth talk nerdy point is the so what. The implications of this research are not sufficiently contemplated within the context of contemporary financial pressures confronting emergency medicine and compounding these burnout rates that we talked about. And there's a delicate balance between pragmatism and meaningful action. What would be the unintended consequences of moving these older adults to the front of the admission line, such as delayed access to care for other time-dependent emergencies or increased mortality in a different subset of patients who now await admission? Jerry Hoffman taught us many years ago, Ken, that if you push everybody at the front of the line, nobody's at the front of the line. Yeah, that's a really important point. And this is the difficulty that we can get in with specialization. Everybody thinks that their patients are the most important patients. So whether it is a heart attack and all resources must descend on that, whether or not it's a stroke, you know, oh, these patients are going to have, you know, potential long-term disability. So all resources need to stop and de and descend upon that issue. And so we have all these codes like code stroke, code MI, uh, code sepsis, you know, that became very important. And so my standard response is, where does this end if everybody is important? Like you said, everybody goes to the front of the line. Why triage anybody? Why, why have triage? Just do them at time of arrival because everybody's important. And until we come up with a code paranikia team and that code paranikia team, I'm sure if you implement code paranikia and that alert goes off and everything stops, time to patient first contact will improve tremendously in that quality improvement process. Time to antibiotics for that paranikia will improve. Yeah, the press gainy scores for patient satisfaction will improve. Length of stay in the emergency, everything will improve. But is that where we should be putting all our resources? And at the end of the day, we need to take care of everyone. And everyone has agency and autonomy and worth. And that's really important. Everybody has worth and value. And so uh, it's really hard when we see these recommendations, Chris, that say, okay, well, if they're older, they should go to the front of the line. I agree they're important, but how do we, how do we come up with a system to say, well, what about the 45-year-old who's got a stroke? Well, they're not old. So does the older person get put at the front of the line or does the 45-year-old with a stroke or the 55-year-old um, with uh, a heart attack or the 62-year-old, six, so they're not in that geriatric, you know, 65 cutoff, but they've got sepsis. Should they be like, like this is the, this is medicine. This is the difficulty working where we work. Yeah. And that's the challenge that popped out to me in reading this article. And the first thing that crossed my mind is, is the so what implications. And I really wish the discussion had gotten into more of that nuance and some of that contemplation, even though they didn't study the impact of moving these patients to the front of the line, contemplate it. And if, if that's not the option, if that's not what they're talking about, moving the patient to the front of the line, what are they saying we should do with these results? There, there was an excellent editorial that accompanied this JAMA internal medicine article written by Tim, Timothy Anderson, it's called The Risks of Being in Limbo in the Emergency Department. And they pose uh, three very pragmatic approaches, I think, which don't involve moving the patient to the front of the line. 
first thing they said was once the patient is admitted in the ED, perhaps a, a quiet space in the ED where they can get a good night's rest and not be disturbed by beeps and bumps and lab draws, um, that, that might be a, a nice way to handle these patients in the ED. A quiet space in the emergency. So, I mean, let's just talk about the face validity there. A quiet space in the emergency department. I mean, I had somebody swearing at me at the top of their lungs yesterday. So I'm not sure where we're going to find that quiet space, but please continue, Chris. The second item they said was the ward team ownership of the patient. Many EDs, once the patient's admitted, the ward team doesn't take ownership until the patient is geographically on the ward, but perhaps the hospital could adapt and have the ward team take over the orders and managing the patient, even when they're physically in the ED to take that strain away from the nursing staff and the physician staff in the ED. That's what we do at our place. So um, once the patient's been admitted, um, uh, most responsible physician is transferred to the inpatient team and the inpatient team does come down and round and sees the patient, manage the patients. Unfortunately, the ER nurses are still responsible for calling and reaching out uh, to the inpatient service and delivering the care as opposed to the inpatient nurses having that responsibility. So that's still difficult. I mean, it's better having the physicians there, but the nursing staff is still tied up taking care of inpatients, which is a real challenge for my nursing colleagues. I don't think that's the case at a lot of places where the, the physician and nursing team doesn't transfer to the ward team until the patient's on the ward. So I, your place is ahead of the curve on that. And then the third thing that, that this uh, editorial recommends is being a little bit more proactive on the discharge side of the equation in terms of the ward patients that are ready for discharge but are awaiting a ride or a last image or a last lab test, sending them to a lounge area, not in their hospital bed, but a lounge area where they can await that paperwork or whatever it is they're waiting for that doesn't require a hospital bed so we can move an ED patient into that hospital bed. And uh, again, I don't think a lot of hospitals are taking that approach uh, to to freeing up the inpatient beds. Yeah, I think that might be a a reasonable approach for people that are just waiting for the ride, let's say, Mm -hmm. or one more thing that isn't going to be dictate that they be admitted or discharged. They're discharged. Um, And then they go to a a nice sunroom, a nice uh, area that can be uh, put together with more than one patient as well and have one individual, one nurse responsible for that area or something like that in case something arises. But you know what? They're they're discharged, and then the rest of the team can turn over the bed, clean the room, get everything ready, and get that patient upstairs uh, from the emergency department. I like I like that idea, Chris. But the the finding finding a quiet space in the emergency department. I thought that was a BMJ Christmas article or something like that. All right, that concludes the nerdy section, and I thought that was a very robust, especially at the end, talk about some nerdy stuff. Um, now let's comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Well, Ken, we accept the validity of these results, although, I, again, future researchers should dig more deeply into the potential patient-level and hospital-level confounders. So can you give an SGEM bottom line? Without further research to understand the unintended consequences and associated costs, I would tread cautiously with the recommendation that older adults should be prioritized for admission to a ward. Yeah, and I think this is really important. This is coming from someone who is a geriatric advocate. You are going around the country trying to get places certified for their emergency department as part of a program to make a to make your emergency department geriatric friendly. Like you have biases towards older adults getting prioritized and you're the one saying, hey, I think we need to be cautious about 
these recommendations. And I think that really emphasizes both your integrity, but also that um, we need to be careful about how we can potentially over-interpret and over-apply the evidence. Yeah, I, I think it's important that we think carefully about these recommendations and we take care of all the patients in the ED. I, I happen to believe that the older adults are a, a signal of the weakness of our healthcare system, the flaws, the strains in our healthcare system. And if we can take well good care of those patients, we're, we're going to be able to take care of younger populations very well. Um, but, but I just think that this paper, this manuscript needs to think a little more carefully about the unintended consequences. Yeah. And it's those unintended consequences where things get created as protocols. And then if your birthday makes you 65 instead of 64, all of a sudden you're bumped up and then there'll be quality metrics and then pay will be associated to this. And then you can see how this will spin out of control. Right. And they, the older adult, are very important, but they're not the only person in the emergency department, especially in a place where we have a community emergency department. What what about the uh, 28-day-old with a fever? You know, where where do they fit into this, right? Are, they're important too. So mm-hmm. um, we, ne- we need to think about everyone and then come up with something that can um, have equity. All right. So how are you going to resolve that case that you presented with, I think it was Mrs. McGee? Yeah, Mrs. McGee. The the case resolution is that due to an exceptional care of an ED nurse with interest in geriatrics who ensures all night long prompt attention to toileting, nutrition, and analgesic requests, that the patient has an uneventful evening on on a gurney in the ED and has MRI imaging at 8 a.m. the next morning. No fracture is identified, so the hospital service gladly admits her, and rehabilitation begins the following day with discharge home a day later. Intrigued by the potential to standardize geriatric emergency care, you set up a meeting with your ED and hospital leadership the next week to begin discussing the ASAP geriatric ED accreditation and the American College of Surgery geriatric surgery verification. And during that meeting, you distribute a copy of a textbook called Creating a Geriatric Emergency Department, a practical guide by the University of Toronto's Don Mulady. And, and all attendees are encouraged to join JEDC's, the Geriatric ED Collaborative's upcoming webinars. Yeah, big shout out to uh, Dr. Don Mulady, a, a real legend of geriatric uh, advocacy and research. I, I believe he just retired. So, Don, well done. What a great career. What you know, I've met you a few times and always been impressed with how much you are putting the care of the elderly at the front of your mission. Let's say. Yeah, I second that. All right. So, uh, you know, I liked how you, uh, you you got in there and, oh, I'm just going to slip a textbook. You're not slipping a paper, you know, in front of them. You give them a whole textbook. So how are you going to apply this information clinically? I would encourage every ED to consider becoming an ASAP geriatric ED accredited organization and geriatricize care for all older adults, whether admitted or discharged. In addition, hospital leaders should, could join the Geriatric Emergency Department Collaborative and learn how ED nurses, physicians, pharmacists, physiotherapists, social workers, and hospital leaders are creating age-friendly emergency departments across a range of settings from rural to urban, academic, and community. So can um, hospitals outside of America uh, get this uh, ASAP uh, accreditation? They can. We, we've accredited uh, over 500 hospitals across the world now, and uh, at least a half dozen or so are outside the United States, in Europe and South America. And Canada? And uh, I have to, I'm not sure. I, I think they're, I have to check on Canada. I'm not sure. Canada can apply, though. 
I hope so. Um, and, and what would be the benefit to somebody doing this? You know, like I, I can see bringing this to my, you know, leadership in the emergency department and in the hospital itself. And I think one of the questions they're going to have is, why should we be accredited, Chris? What, do, what does this do for us as an institution? I think that it helps to bring attention to this older adult population, join with a community of, of researchers and clinicians and policymakers who understand how to get, garner those resources to your hospital. Um, if, if you need a physiotherapist, you don't have a physiotherapist, here's how you make that business case for your hospital leaders. If you need to understand how to better recognize dementia and delirium and to have interventions in place to, to truncate the episode of delirium, here's 12 different ways that institutions like yours have done that uh, across the world. And so I, I think it really helps to bring the resources you need from an educational perspective, from a clinical operations standpoint, from a financial standpoint to your front door so that you can convince your hospital leadership um, how to do this well for this older adult population. I also think it brings together the team-based approach that is necessary for emergency care of older adults. It's not just the emergency physicians and nurses. This is a team that needs to do this that includes physiotherapy and social work, uh, nursing, um, hospital hospitalists, and hospital administrators. Uh, and I think that that's what this opportunity to get accredited brings to your organization. Keep in mind, too, that it's not just emergency medicine doing this now. Uh, in the United States, surgery is also doing it through the American College of Surgeons. Yeah, so I have repeatedly said we're all on team patients. So this is this is putting together a great team of both clinicians and administrators to deal with the challenges that come with uh, older adults and making sure that they get the great care that they deserve based on the best evidence available. And uh, other places may have come up with really unique or um, effective uh, strategies, protocols, and this can cross-pollinate and you can share it across the network if you get um, accredited this way. So, Chris, what are you going to tell the patient who's going to be spending the night? Well, I'm, I'm going to have a conversation with Mrs. McGee and tell her that hospital crowding and ED boarding are a frequent problem, unfortunately, in many, if not most, healthcare systems. Our ED staff will continue to provide your care overnight while awaiting imaging to exclude a fracture, which may be missed and up to 9% of patients after a hip x-ray shows no fracture. Once that imaging is available, we will plan to admit you to the appropriate hospital service if your pain persists and you're still unable to ambulate. While awaiting that imaging, please notify your nurse if you need to use the restroom, eat, or receive additional pain medications. Time to announce the Keener Contest winner and... We didn't have a winner for the last episode. We were looking for who coined the term microaggression. And the answer was a Harvard professor called Chester M. Pierce. Chris, what's the Keener Contest question this episode? According to 2022 data, what percentage of adults aged 65 and older live in the United States? This number is expected to grow, by the way. Well, if you know the answer of what percentage of older adults, 65 and older, live in the United States, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line, and the first correct answer will receive a cool, skeptical prize. Well, thanks, Chris, for coming on and uh, doing another show with me. Ken, it's my pleasure talking about my favorite topic, too, older adults. Yeah, usually we, we try to have a target of about 
20 minutes or so, 25 minutes for these SGEM episodes. But having my BFF talking about his favorite subject, of course, we're going to go over 40 minutes. <laughs> my apologies. No, no, no. It's great content. So as long as it's great content, I'm ready to record it. Um, so now you just need to read the tagline. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Bye.